0: Hi, this is Patti Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis.
1: This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson.
0: This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia
1: Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine.
0: A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love, as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. If you know me, you know how obsessed I am with live performance. To me, nothing replaces being in a theater and the lights going down and the orchestra starts to play and that first moment of magic. And I know the way I feel about theater, some people feel about sports or opera or dance or comedy or food. And what if there was a place that you could go and find out which live events are going on near you that night and then for a discount price you can get off your couch put down that clicker and experience the magic that is live performance well there is a place goldstar.com you just go to that website you type in your city and every amazing live event will be listed at discount prices theater dance comedy film food concerts sports No more staying home. You are going to go out and build memories and experiences that expand your mind and heart through live performance with GoldStar.com. GoldStar is in 26 cities around the country, with over 8 million members already signed up to find out what event is going on near you. So go to GoldStar.com, get out of your house and build memories that are magic for you and your family. Expand your mind, expand your hearts. Go see live performance by using goldstar.com. Tell them Alana sent you. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's Alana and friends with some revelations. known fact about my guest today. He left college because he wasn't able to get cast in roles as a person of color, and he decided, if the odds are going to be against me, I might as well be out there and pursuing this professionally. He left school, and the very first audition he had in New York City, he was cast. Welcome the extraordinary actor, Joe Morton, to the podcast. okay. everyone. My guest today is the Tony-nominated and Emmy Award-winning actor Joe Morton. Some of Joe's Broadway credits include Hair, Raisin, Stuff Happens, and Art. He has a huge resume filled with a crazy number of films and television shows, but some of them are Batman vs. Superman, Justice League, The Brother from Another Planet, Terminator 2, American Gangster, What Lies Beneath, and The Astronaut's Wife. On TV, he is globally famous, having played Papa Pope on Scandal. And he was also on The Good Wife, Eureka, Proof, Grace and Frankie, and the biopic All the Way with Brian Cranston. right now, uh, he was just whisked from the set of God Friended Me, the CBS hit show that Mr. Morton stars on. Joe is an activist and truly beloved by all who have had the honor of working with him. I mentioned to people you were coming on the show and everyone was like, oh my God, I love Joe Morton. <laughs> so that's nice to know. That's very nice Your to hear. Your reputation precedes you. So I'm thrilled to welcome the multiple NAACP Image Award winning actor, Joe Morton, to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you. The only thing I'd like to add to that Please is... Do. is is. Um, Turn Me Loose, which is a play we did off-Broadway Wow! Uh, about Dick Gregory.
0: Yes, yes. I uh, How sad that I neglected to say that because it seems like that was a passion project.
1: It was. I mean, from all different kinds of angles, passion in that, that's what you had to invest in the play, passion in that's what I wanted to do, passion in that, I was very glad that Dick actually got a chance to see it before he died. So,
0: Can you tell some of my listeners who may not be as familiar with Dick Gregory, because obviously this was a man that was really important to you in your own life, and yeah. you wanted to play him?
1: Dick Gregory, um, during the 60s mostly, um, uh, was part of the um, – um, Civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. He was not only part of the civil rights movement. He was right up there with Martin Luther King. He was also a well-known comedian, which is how many, many people know him. Some people know him from what was called the Bahamian Diet, which is something that he started. He started that because what he would do in terms of protest is fast. And so he needed to figure out a way to do that and stay healthy at the same time. And so he came up with this diet, um, which was incredible. Um, He was a man who was filled with passion. He worked the civil rights movement 24-7. He Uh, went to Mississippi at a time when it was terrifying for black people to go to Mississippi uh, because of Medgar Evers, who then became his best friend. And the play was called Turn Me Loose because uh, when Medgar was assassinated, the last three words that Medgar spoke was Turn Me Loose.
0: So is this... Was he someone that you were aware of growing up? Uh, did someone? Did you meet him? And I then did decide meet him to do the show. Or no, I met. The, I had actually met things? him
1: year, years and years ago. Okay, uh, and then years parted, and I hadn't seen him for many, many years, and then. My manager came to me and said that there was a play written by Gretchen Law about Dick Gregory and would I be interested in reading it and maybe possibly doing it. And I read the play, loved the play. It was an amazing thing that she did. They had spent, I think, 48 hours up where Dick lived. I mean, literally 48 hours sort of taping things and talking to him and doing all of that to get the research. He then left them alone for a couple of years and they wrote the play. Um, By the time I got it, it was ready to be put on stage. We did it here in New York. We did it in L.A., and it was done, not by me, by somebody else in Washington, D.C. Um, An incredible piece of theater. Um, From what I can gather, people were enormously moved Mm -hmm. by the performance. Um, He was a man who was just filled with... um, All kinds of things. I mean, you know, he talks about the fact that there was a point in his life that he he had holes in his shoes. And about a year later, he had more shoes than he could possibly wear. He went from making $17 a week to making $17 million a year. And a lot of that money he ended up giving away to the movement.
0: So Um, how did he become such – I mean – it's very hard to break into comedy, right? Mm. As a career, very few people get that kind of wealth or notoriety. Absolutely. Um, especially before social media, before you That's know, right. there was a way to spread the word. So how did he catch fire like that?
1: He started out uh, in a very small club in Chicago uh, doing stand-up. Um, and then um, uh, who's the man who owns, uh, not the Hustler, the, uh, uh, the other club, uh, I can't remember now what it's okay. called. But one of these huge, huge, a huge, huge clubs club. huge comedy clubs.
0: I'm more from I was gonna say Zigfield, no. but I don't think.
1: No, no, not that far back. <laughs> not that weird. far back. Yes. Um, but at any rate, um, um, Hugh Hefner was sitting in yes. the front was sitting in the front okay. row when he was working in Chicago. Hugh Hefner heard his comedy and invited him to come down to, to at the Playboy Club. So he went to the Playboy Club and he went to the Playboy Club on a night when they were filled with all white Southerners. And a lot of his humor, that's the other thing he's known for. He was the first comedian actually to talk about racism and to talk about politics, as he would say, it, um, you know, standing on his own two feet. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did. Uh, and at first it wasn't very well accepted by this very southern, very white right. audience. But he, he started off, I think he was only supposed to be there uh, an hour or so. He ended up being there for four or five hours, won them over to the point that somebody called Hugh Hefner. Hugh Hefner came down to see him work. He ended up spending several months. And that's how he, that's how he became famous now.
0: Can you just situate me on a timeline? Like around what year is that? So this is 1962
1: maybe, 63. Um, He then, uh, as a result of that, uh, got a call from Jack Parr to come on The Tonight Show. Wow. Um, And he was a big fan of Jack Parr for many, many years. I think he was one night watching Jack Parr with his friend Billy Eckstein. And Billy said, oh, I hate this guy. Dick Gregory said, why? He said, well, because if you notice, whenever a black performer comes on, all he does is does his thing, and then he's scooted off the stage. He never Mm -hmm. gets to sit on the chair, Mm -hmm. or on the couch, I should say, and talk with Jack Parr. Next to Mr.
0: Parr, right.
1: So when Jack Parr calls, now this is a break of a lifetime, right? Jack Parr calls and said, we want you to come on the show. He says, no. He says, I'm not going to do it. So he hangs up the phone. Jack Parr apparently called back, this time in person, and said, "Why, why are you not doing my show? He explained why. And, and Jack Parr ended up saying, sure, you can come and sit on the couch. It was the first black entertainer on that show, other than Sammy Davis Jr. But remember, Sammy always went on as a guest host, right. not as a guest.
0: Yeah, other side of the desk.
1: So Dick went on. Uh, it was a huge, huge hit. Uh, I saw one of the uh, sort of old videos of what he did. And one of the questions that Jack asked him, he said, so uh, what, what kind of car do you drive? And Dick said, uh, Lincoln, of course.
0: So, are you aware of him in your youth, or, or yes, in your so, yeah. early twenties? Oh, Was absolutely. he someone that you followed?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I knew him as a comedian, yeah, uh, and then later on, I knew him uh, as a as an activist.
0: So, wow. Uh, what a thrill it must have been for you not just to get to deep dive into this person and play this person and do this play and have it be received, but get to know the man.
1: A bit. He didn't come around while we were rehearsing. He really just left us alone. Mm-hmm. He he and I sort of became best friends, as it were, after the show opened. He came for opening night. Uh, I didn't know where he was going to be sitting, but I knew at some point, because it was a small theater, maybe yeah. it held 240 people, Um, So I knew at some point I would be eye-to-eye with Dick Gregory, and it it came at a really interesting time in the play. He talks about one of the first times he goes down to Mississippi, and he was terrified to go down there. Um, But then he gets into the story about Emmett Till, and that's when I turned and I was looking right into his face. Um, And it was like we were having a private conversation. It was really, really interesting.
0: Isn't it incredible? I mean, when you think about – so you have done many things – you have been in, as I said, one billion movies. I, I'm I, Math is not my strong suit, which is why I became an actress. But I'm not far off when you look at the body of work that right. you've done. Um, I think that for many people that I sit with who started in the theater that remains and always will be their first love. Oh, of course. Uh, the greatest training ground possible to then go on to do all these other things that well, you Well, I mean, it's done. like I tell
1: young actors all the time. If you, you know, the actors say, well, so what, what should I do to get started? And I always say, do theater. And you can mm-hmm. see their eyes glaze over and see... <laughs> Um, But then I begin to explain, look, if you can do a a, a character eight times a week for, let's say, three to six months and keep that character alive eight times a week, then you can do anything. TV and film becomes an easier task. Mm -hmm. Whereas doing it the other way around, there's lots of TV and and movie actors who cannot do theater because they're not trained to use their body or trained to use their voice. So, um, uh, yes, if you've done theater, then you never leave it.
0: Yes, because I wish – I hate sometimes that this is an audio experience because – Your eyes light up and the expression on your face was pure joy when you were talking about this theatrical piece. Mm. Um, Can we go back a little bit, although I cannot wait after I leave here today to just deep dive through YouTube and Google and books into the life of Dick Gregory, Mm. um, because how thrilling to now put his name out there. Uh, for people who feel like they know who the players were to now learn about one more person who's so important to our history. And
1: in this uh, millennium, it's interesting, the book that he's probably most famous for, which is his biography, this is going to be a word that's going to shock a lot of people, the name of his book is called Nigger, Uh um, because that's what he wanted. And when you read the book, you begin to understand why, that racism is something that he had to struggle through in order to get where he got, Um, and so it becomes a big sort of motif in the book.
0: And... That must have been very shocking.
1: It was at the time, uh, but he used to practice it. Um, uh, so that he he told his mother he called that book that name, so that every time she heard that word, she knew they were advertising his book.
0: <laughs> what a good way to turn it around! Yes, yeah, okay, amazing. So you were uh, where were you born?
1: I was born in Harlem. Okay. Um, I'd never really lived in Harlem. I, I, I did for a year or so much later on. But my father was in the Army, so I'm an Army brat. So we lived in uh, Yonkers for a little while before he got his – whatever his next mission was. Mm-hmm. And then most of my life between that point and the age of 10 was spent living in uh, – outside the country. We lived in Germany. We lived in Okinawa. We lived in Japan. He spent a couple of years in Massachusetts, which I sometimes used to consider a foreign country. But there you go.
0: Well – Did you have siblings? No. Okay, so you were an only child. Yes. Uh, Do you have very vivid memories of that time of your oh, life of course
1: yeah i mean you when do? we lived in okinawa we lived in this beautiful little house at the, across from a bamboo field we had a garden in the back and i used to play in the garden um or play in the bamboo fields i mean to have a bamboo field for as a kid is someplace to play it's just an amazing thing yeah um we had a maid and we had a gardener and that's where i learned japanese was from them okay um um uh, that was, I mean, it's it was gorgeous. It was beautiful.
0: And were you super close to your parents?
1: Uh, yes and no. I mean, my father was not home a lot because right. his job actually was to integrate the armed forces overseas, which was to say to that,
0: integrate the armed forces. Yes, that
1: is. He would show up. We would show up uh, at army posts racially unannounced, and then as soon as he showed up at his desk or wherever. Uh, the proverbial shit would hit the fan um, and things would get a little bit crazy. But we did that most of the time that he was alive. Um, so it was an interesting kind of thing. And that's maybe one of the other reasons why you don't forget. In Germany, we lived on a kind of bland army post, but we had friends off the post who were German tailors. And so um, and we. Were you
0: pretty much. Often the only person of color wherever you went, the only usually, child?
1: Usually I was the only one or maybe one of two. Uh-huh. Um, it was uh, one officer and one um, non-commissioned officer. Can
0: you tell me about this part of uh, history in terms of our military to integrate our military? That you have to was understand that it, job?
1: Yeah, because, uh, well, from the time the military, the United States Army was instituted, right. Right, there were, it was segregated. Right. So that you had... Um, um, Blacks over here and whites over there. And most blacks were not allowed to carry weapons, although after World War, uh, during World War I, they did carry weapons. When they came back home, there was something called the uh, Red Summer of 1919 because a lot of people in the South got upset that these black folks had weapons, and they were literally uh, dragged out of their home and lynched. Um, it was a horrible time in this country, one of the most horrible times in this country. Um, and during World War Two. Um Eleanor Roosevelt was the one who then said we should integrate the armed forces. Mm-hmm. And, and that movement was called Eleanor's Niggers. That's what it was called during the time. Um, so that what made this different was that not only did you shuffle together white enlisted men with black enlisted men, but you also had – Black men who were officers, who were giving orders to white enlisted men and white non-commissioned officers, which had never been done before.
0: And that is what your father's that's role was. That's what he did. Was. yes. So his role was not to come in and integrate it in terms of being the person to facilitate how to integrate. No. He was the person integrating it. Well, in. if,
1: if you remember the play or the movie, yeah. Soldier's Story or Soldier's yep. Play, that's what that was all about.
0: Denzel Washington went to Fordham University, as did I, and he right. is one of our grandest claims to fame. Right. And then Matthew Broderick did Glory. I mean, there have been a lot of films trying to introduce stories of 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 soldiers and integrated armies right. or the lack thereof. But I cannot imagine – I mean, there's so much I cannot imagine. But to be the person who who is the first uh, to be there – must have been really intense for your dad.
1: It was intense for not just for my dad. It was intense for my mother and myself yeah. at the same time. I was usually in fights for one reason or another, and my mother. Because you were
0: always being picked on or bullied or, or having yeah.
1: to defend something or yeah. whatever. Um, my mother, um, they had officers' wives clubs, and in those officers' wives clubs, all the wives treated each other according to their f- husband's rank. Right. But. Even though my mother's husband was a captain, they obviously treated her lower than that because she was black. Um, And that's how we lived for a good nine years of my life.
0: So why did he want to do this?
1: Oh, well, for all the obvious reasons, is to advance the civilization, if you will. And it's also the reason that I'm an only child. My father did not want to bring another black child into this world the way it was. Um,
0: Did you guys sit around talking about this at the time? Was no,
1: it... I think it was far too intense for all mm-hmm. of that. I mean, I think that what would happen is, you know, when you're when you're isolated like that, what tends to happen uh, as let me say it this way um, you have ghetto communities uh-huh. that are forced to live within those communities. So what happens to them? They begin to fight with each other because that's all they have, and that's all, and so that's all they're, they're going for. Same thing was true for our family, mm-hmm. is there was no place, there was no outreach for us. So what ends up happening is you end up kind of doing each other in.
0: Right, right. That's the nature of things. That's right. Did you have a lot of extended family in your life?
1: Well, we did and we didn't because we weren't you here. You weren't here,
0: right. So you came back right. at some point.
1: When I was 10.
0: When you were 10. So why did you guys come
1: back at that point? My father died. Um, he was killed in an accident uh, in Germany when we were actually stationed in Dachau. Um, he was killed. We came back to the United States. We lived with my grandmother for about a year. Um, and then we moved to Queens where I went to high school. And then we moved to Long Island where I went to college. Um And that was not easy either because, again, because we weren't here, whatever extended family we had, we didn't really know them. And they didn't really know us. Uh, My mother made an attempt to... Uh, buy a two-family home. Now, in those days, because now this is, we're talking about 1957. Okay. In those days, a woman could not, a single woman could not buy property on her own. She needed a man to cosign. So my mother decided to ask my uncle, my father's brother, okay. to co-sign, which he did. And he lived upstairs from us. But there was... Again, you know, people are people, and he did some terrible things. He basically tried to figure out a way to make my mother go crazy so that he could get the money from the VA, from the, uh, VA and adopt me and get whatever monies I was getting. It just went crazy. Um,
0: are you writing a book? What's happening? Uh, this is just, I mean, your story is so unique and beautiful and heartbreaking, and you're a huge success. So all of this comes together in some, be- I mean, talk about a one-man show.
1: Right. Uh, so what I tried to do is write a screenplay called "Strangers," and it was meant to be about my father. It turned out to be about me and my mother. Huh. Um, uh,
0: was your dad's name? On Junior. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So your father passed away.
1: Right. Your mom. Uh, my mom uh, took that really, really hard. Um, uh, so uh, when we first when, when we lived in Harlem, um, that was the first time I'd ever been in a school that was mostly black. So I was. Actually looking forward to it. Right. But it didn't turn out so well again because now you have to remember, you have to understand, here's this kid who speaks the way I do, not Mm -hmm. the way kids sound in in Harlem. Uh, I really didn't play much basketball. Um, When they were playing basketball, I guess I was What were you doing? Well, I guess I was... Learning how to ice skate, I suppose. You're
0: like, where's the bamboo? Right, no
1: right. yeah, exactly. <laughs> the bamboo field. Um, when they were, when I was learning foreign languages, they were learning how to speak on the street, mm-hmm. um, and so again, more fights. Shadow water. More fights. Um, yeah, more fights. And so my mother decided to send me off to a Catholic military school, which was probably the best thing she could do. She needed relief as well because mm-hmm. she was actually going through a nervous breakdown. Um, so while I was in school, she never made it to my graduation uh, eighth grade because she was in, in the hospital. Um, and then by the time I got out, she was okay. We got rid of upstairs um, and kind of started all over again, but she never really was the same right. s- since then.
0: Is she still no, she, alive? No, she
1: died several years ago.
0: Okay. At some point, at some point, you find a community that does make sense for you mm-hmm. because you have been an actor, a successful actor for decades. Mm. So something about, you know what, I don't even want to be presumptuous. Maybe it's not the community that worked for you. It's the work, that you're an artist and it was just undeniable for I think for it's you. a little bit of
1: both. I mean, I think uh, when I went to Hofstra University.
0: Is that on Long Island?
1: Yes. Uh, and I entered as a psychology major. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, First day on campus, they took us around to show us the campus. They took us into a theater to show us a skit about what our first year would be like. And when the skit was over, I couldn't get up out of my seat, having nothing to do with what I'd seen, but just the atmosphere of the theater and the work light up on the stage. And I'd been writing songs and playing guitar and, okay. and singing for a while. So I thought to myself, you know what? I really like doing that. Maybe I could be an actor. And I finally got up, walked out of the theater, walked to the registrar's office and changed all my majors from psychology to drama.
0: When you came back to the states, did you see theater? Did you see music up in Harlem? Were you were the arts a no, part of your life? N-
1: not really, no. Um, were uh, you
0: listening to records? I was listening to music, yeah,
1: of course. Um, but I don't think I saw. I think the first play I ever saw was *Pearly Victorious*, the play, not the musical. Okay. Uh, but I was in high school by then.
0: So suddenly, this whole—I mean, the building, the atmosphere—it begins.
1: Well, yeah. So uh, I go to class and um, it seems like something I can not do easily, but something that I can get to. Um, We had wonderful teachers. The thing about Hofstra University is they they really, at least the years that I was there, they had some incredible acting teachers. Mm -hmm. Um, There was still Prejudice. I still had a hard time getting a role on the main stage. I could get stuff on our smaller stage, but not on the main stage because the character was always related to this one. I had this was his girlfriend, and blah 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 blah. And at the time, I was the only black male in my class. Uh, Later on, there were other black females who came behind me, but um, so there was that. Um, To the point that when I was a junior in college, um, one of my favorite teachers. A uh, man by the name of Joe Leon, who's no longer with us, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, was And his job was to teach us what it was going to be like in the real world when we left school. So he was going to direct a Brendan Bean play okay. called The Hostage. And basically it's about an Irishman who's captured by the English. I'm sorry, the other way around. An Englishman who's cap- captured by uh, the IRA. Um and I thought, oh, The Stranger, The Outsider, perfect. Yeah. So I went in, and I could do the accent. That was no problem. And Joe said to me, he said, well, know, yeah, you can do the accent. He said, you can do this part with your hands tied behind you, but I'm not going to give it to you. He said, Not to uh, no pun intended, but you would color the play. And I basically said, Joe, mm, I'm leaving. I'm leaving school. I'm right. done. Uh, this if is, I
0: can't do it here.
1: I'd rather, if, I, if I have to struggle to do it here, I'd rather struggle to get paid. Sure. So he got very upset. And he said, well, all right, if you're determined to leave, and he gave me the number of an agent. I think the agent's name was Richard somebody or other. Um, And he said, call this guy and tell him that Joe Leon told you to call, and I'm sure he'll see you. I said, great, thank you. So I move into the city, have an apartment, I make the call. How?
0: How do you move into the city? How Uh, do you have an apartment?
1: uh, How do I do that? Well, I guess what I did was, um, uh, well, I left home. I packed up my bags. I moved in with another guy, a friend of mine.
0: Did you have a job? Did you have any savings? How did you even pay the rent?
1: Well, because I I moved in after I got a job. Okay. Um, So I got to New York, um, went to this agent's office. It was a Wednesday. I think I'd spoken to the agent on the Previous Monday, I walked up to the receptionist and I said, "I'm here to see Richard so and so." And she said, "Are you sure you're in the right place?" I looked at my book. Yeah, this is the right address, right place, right time, right day. Um, she said, "Well, when did you speak to him?" I said, "Monday." She said, "Well, that's not impossible. That's that's impossible." I said, "Why?" She said, "Well, because he hasn't worked here for six months." What? I said, "Well, I spoke to somebody and they made an appointment." So she what? goes back. And she comes back out, and she takes me back into an office. Uh, in the office, the guy was in the office, a man by the name of Ed Blum. Now, what had happened was when we got spoke on the phone, I said, hi, my name is Joe Morton. Joe Leon told me to call you. And the man on the other end of the phone said, sure, come in and see me. But he never told me who, what his name was. Right. He just assumed I knew who I was talking to. Yes. I was not talking to Richard so-and-so. No. I was talking to Ed Blum, who also happened to be.
0: Apologies. That's Ed Blum on the line. <laughs> Keep going, because be story a f- ever.
1: Who also happened to be a friend of Joe Leon's. Okay. And that's why he took the appointment. And that's why he took the appointment. Uh, and in the course of that appointment, he called up and he said, do you sing? I said, yes. And he picked up the phone and he got me an audition for a terrible musical called The Month of Sundays, but it was at the Théâtre de Lise. Um I went in, I auditioned, I got the part, it got me my equity card, um, your first job first job
0: your first audition became your first job that's right so you sing great yes um have you made an album
1: uh, we are actually in the process of doing that now I made an album once many 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 years ago but it was never released
0: okay so this is an unusual story it's an unusual beginning mm-hmm. Um Somehow, it wasn't beginner's luck, because from then on, so you are now in your first, is this Off-Broadway?
1: Off-Broadway, at the Theater Delise, yeah.
0: Um, where was that? That's the not theater, Lise, theater I know now.
1: Yeah, you know it as the uh, Lucy Lortel Theater now.
0: That's where it was, on Christopher Street? That's right. Okay, so are there people from that production, director, designers, I actors, Do you no, know anyone still? I have
1: no idea. No. All, I, all I remember about that musical was that when the review came out, it was November, and when the review came out, uh, the uh, critics said, well, you know, it's it's early in the season, but the first turkey has hit off-Broadway. Okay. It was a terrible play. It was a saccharine sweet play, a kind of take a takeoff right. of a Noah story, and uh, the only interesting thing that happened was... Uh, We were in previews, so the set wasn't quite finished yet and all the rest of it. Um, And the idea was that there was this boat that's floating in the water. Yes. And all these characters float up on different things. And I floated up on uh, what used to be a telephone booth. We don't have them anymore, but the old-fashioned kind of real telephone booth. Look it up, kids. Right. So I float up on my telephone booth. And just as I jump from the top of the telephone booth onto the boat... It hit one of the temporary backings um, at the back of the house, the back of the the stage, and it began to swing, and then it hit everything up in the flies, and so snow came down, a parachute came down, and of course, you know, the show has to go on, so I'm still doing my lines until finally... A producer stands up out of the audience and stops the show, and we reset, and blah, blah, blah. And so when I come back out again, I get a full ovation. So I can actually say on my first off-Broadway play, I brought the house down.
0: Yes, Joe Morton. (laughs) Yes. And then you got a taste of it. You're like, I like that. So you stay in New York. Yes. And you make your way. Yes. And Ed Blum... Uh, Is st- your agent for Ed a while? Bum was my
1: agent for a while. He was wonderful, but he did not have a contract with that agency. So eventually he had to leave. But <laughs> I was signed to that agency. <laughs> when
0: you called that day, he, just, he didn't even work there. He just happened to answer the phone. Well, and... he
1: did work there, but with not a contract. Right. So uh, he actually went on to manage Joel Gray. Um, but uh, I was then out of an agent. Um,
0: when you got Raisin, which was the musical right. version of Raisin in the Sun,
1: right?
0: Uh, was he your agent still? Was that no, all? No, that, part-
1: that was many years later. Okay. So that's nineteen seventy four. By the time we did Raisin, okay, seventy three, seventy four. Um, no, Ed was out of the picture by then.
0: Brother from Another Planet, the John Sales film. Right. I knew Fisher Stevens, ah. so so that was on my radar um, in ways that it might not have been for everyone at the time. And, right. and Sales was really one of the. Beginning, kind of indie filmmaker he geniuses was one of the quintessential that quintessential really, American yeah, in independent filmmaker started yeah. started the form or what we think of when we think of independent film. Right. There's not a person on the planet who who knew him or worked with him who doesn't talk about John Sayles with with a, a true reverential. Uh, feeling about this person.
1: John was definitely a genius. I mean, and also, you know, he wrote all the time. He he was an insomniac, right? So he mm. didn't sleep very well. So when he wasn't sleeping, he was writing, and he would he would write on his on, on the bus. He would write wherever he was, um, and he had clear things to say. And in those days, those things needed to be heard. And most yeah. of what he wrote about was worker versus management. Right. Um, uh, and uh, I'm, But I think these days those kinds of filmmakers have a harder time uh, getting funded than in, in, in the past.
0: Well, I would say that when I sort of think about why I know who you are originally, that must have been – that was a breakthrough role. Would yes. you agree that in oh, terms of sort of – did that – had you started doing film or TV before that movie? Pino. I did.
1: Uh, I did a film uh, that was directed and written by the same woman who did Hester Street. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, I don't even remember what it was. Oh, Between the Lines is what yeah. it was called. Um, uh, and I did that, and that was kind of. Uh, it was fun because everybody was in it. Um, uh, Jeff Goldblum was in it. Uh, Lindsey Kraus was in it. Uh, uh, Michael Pollard was in it. Um, wow. I mean, uh, uh, what's it? What's uh, the, the band was? Uh, oh, oh, I can't even think of the name. But it was this huge cast. Yeah. Wonderful cast. What ticked me off about that film was the woman who directed and wrote it said, you know, I I haven't written any dialogue for you because I don't know how to write for black people, as if that was something different. So I ended up – whatever I said in that movie, I wrote.
0: You have had to hear those kinds of inane comments so often from your childhood through your Mm -hmm. – it seems to me at some point you thought, I'm going to educate I'm going to be the person to help these people. Like, how do you take that? How do you not continue to punch people and fight people and 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 kind of do because the work? Because
1: there's an easier way to prove them wrong. Yes. So um, uh, uh, Leonard Nimoy is directing a film called Good Wife. Good Wife? Good Mother. Good Mother. Good Mother. And it's about uh, a woman who is divorced from her husband. She has a child. She falls in love with another man. Um um, actually, who's played by Neam Leeson. And she they end up in bed with the child together. Okay. And I wanted to audition for their lawyer. Okay. And when I walked into audition, Leonard said to me, he said, well, you know, we have to be careful about how we present our blacks in this movie. And I looked at him and said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, um, you know, uh, I- I'm not sure this would work. And so I said, look, w- w- why don't we do this? I said, why don't you... Uh, I'm
0: not sure it will work for you, a person of color, to play an attorney in my film?
1: That's right. That's
0: what he literally meant. That's
1: what he meant. Because the only black people that were in the film so far were itinerants who were you saw sort of chaotically outside the courtroom. Um, That's the only black folks you saw in the movie. Okay. So I presented that argument to him by saying, here's what you're showing, here's what you're saying, and here's what I can bring to it. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, you're talking to me like a lawyer.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Voila. Thank
0: you. Right. And scene.
1: So so he gave me the part, but right. those kinds of things and that kind of argument was always what I had to to go through. My most of my career was saying no, you're wrong, and let me show you mm-hmm. why you're wrong, and then having to put them in a position where they can't deny you because there you are, right? And you're doing the part, right? Um,
0: I'm sure you speak about this constantly uh, in all sorts of places and panels, and yes. Uh, and have been the recipient of awards for being a, a role model in so many ways to so many people, and someone that people look up to. Do you, when you do, brother from another planet, um, and guys, this is so long before Shonda Rhimes comes on the scene and and gives us a Shakespearean opportunity with your character. I mean, no one has had the opportunity to do monologues and the kind of work that you got to do. That's right. um, mm-hmm. For which you were rewarded with an Emmy, and also just—I'm sure—I don't know—it seems like Uh, a great cast and a lot of fun. Oh, great cast and a lot of fun.
1: Interesting thing about that Emmy. So, uh, at the time that I won the Emmy, I was a recurring character. I was not a—I was not a season. Right, right, because it was a
0: guest star that you got to win for.
1: Um, And what she did was again unusual. I was in—I think we did 18 episodes that year. I think I was in all 18 episodes of, of that third season. Um, won the Emmy. The following year, they changed the rules. The following year, they said, if you're a guest star and you do more than half the number of episodes for that season, you, you're no longer a guest star. You're now a supporting actor.
0: Regardless of your paycheck. That's right. Yes.
1: Which I thought was pretty interesting.
0: Yeah. Why did they do that?
1: Because I think somebody felt it was unfair that mm-hmm. here, Joe Morton was in 18 episodes of right. Scandal. I may have only been in, you know, somebody else may have only been in six episodes of right. whatever. Um I don't know that that's unfair. I mean, I, I think it's up to every production to decide, you know, um, how they want to use their guest stars. Right. It is up to the guest star in terms of their availability. So if I was available for 18, then why not? Um, I just found it interesting that they changed the rules.
0: Yes. So after you do Brother from Another Planet, I just keep going back to it because you're suddenly someone people know. That was a breakout role. to yes. Things. Uh, are you living in New York or L.A. at the time? Uh, living in New York. Do things change for you after no, that?
1: No. The joke used to be that if I walked into an audition and somebody said, "Oh, brother from another planet, love that movie," I was not going to get that role.
0: <laughs> like, I'm going to I'm going to leave now
1: because they no one remember the part he doesn't speak. Yeah. So nobody knew what I sounded like. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I started to speak, and they thought, "Oh, wait, no, no, you're not urban enough. You're not you're not black enough." So that's what what I went through for a little for a little while.
0: Okay. So. When you kind of look back at this incredible career that you've had, what are the highlights for you? Because I can look through your thing and say, I loved you in this. And, oh, my God, the Tom Hanks Shakespeare that you did. And, right, like you've done so much and so many things in every style. And you sing and you get to be on, like, I don't know, charming television and really important television, Mm -hmm. right? Like all the things. What are the highlights for you? That when you think about all the things. Well, I mean,
1: Brother from Another Planet was yeah. huge for me. Um, uh, Terminator 2, you know, the joke by the time I got to Terminator 2 was that was the only movie I ever did because whenever anybody saw me, they said, "Oh, Terminator yes. 2."
0: And I sure, I imagine. By the way, you look really young, and you have not changed very much, so you <laughs> must get recognized. From things you did a long time ago all the time because you look exactly the same.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, again, because of the country we live in, you know, it's interesting with uh, fans, especially white fans. They hesitate to say anything because they don't want – because, you know, you look like that guy. (laughs) they are not sure. (laughs) They're not sure. Is it it Joe Morton or someone who looks like him? Right.
0: So, well, it is. Guys, I'm here to say I'm with Joe Morton (laughs) and you look exactly like Joe Morton. But Terminator to sort of go from – that's a huge movie. That was his first huge movie. Well, that was
1: right, because remember, Terminator itself was a small, independent film. Um, Terminator 2 was a much bigger film.
0: Where did Um, you film that?
1: We shot it in L.A. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the time, I had just finished doing a television series called Equal Justice. Yes. Uh, Thomas Carter was the director and producer on that show. Brilliant show. Uh, I think we lasted maybe two seasons uh, when ABC then fired all the large ensembles. So I think I just finished either season one. It was 1991, so I guess it was season Two of that so we were kind of done um, when I ended up doing Terminator two and and it was interesting because I'd already done in 74 uh, well actually uh, later than that in 86 I'd done um, brother to another planet right so I'd never been on a set that had this kind of money um, and James did things that I just thought were amazing I mean we hadn't shot uh, my death scene yet uh, we'd shot everything spoiler-, that-
0: spoiler alert guys if you've seen the movie <laughs>
1: Um, so we'd done everything that led up to it, yeah. but we hadn't actually shot that particular portion of it. And before we shot it, James wanted to see the next bit, which was, uh, Linda crawls across to the other side of the room. The cops blow out all the windows. Well, he blew out all the windows and there was not one single camera running. And he only did it because he wanted to see what it looked like. So he, he would know how to shoot it. Um, and I think even after he did that, he had, uh, um, um, uh, what's his name, stunt double, walked through a wall just again so we could see what it looked like.
0: How do you, I ask this because I audition on occasion for movies like that and it's really hard to know how to audition for a movie like Terminator 2 or any movie where it's props and guns and bad guys and there's no way to recreate any of that in a teeny room with a no. casting director. Right. Um, now we can self-tape more, which has pros and cons, but at least you and your friend can make a little movie and, right. and figure it out somehow. Did you have to audition for Terminator 2?
1: I don't know that I ever read anything. I don't think anybody did because I remember we, it was kind of like old home week. There were a bunch of black male actors sitting in a room waiting yep. to be interviewed by James. So
0: you're catching up so with the friends. And
1: talking and so yeah. I went in for my interview and as I said I don't I may I, I may have I just don't remember that I ever did And James said to me he said why do you think this role is so important And I said because of a joke that Richard Pryor told and he said, what's that?" I said, well Richard said that the reason black folks either are not in sci-fi movies or they get killed off right away is that Hollywood doesn't think we're going to be here in the future. And I think that's what got me the role Yes
0: Wow. So you've had experiences where, people are blowing things up when the cameras are not rolling, and then you've done things where you're like, I will help cut the carrots in order to make this thing go, right? right? Um, Do you feel like you are equally comfortable at this point in in an off-off Broadway theater or a $500 million movie set? Do you have... Yeah, I
1: think so. I mean, I think that that should be what every actor should be able to do. You should be able to swing from one thing to the other because it's not about how much money is being spent, Um, it is about the script. It is, why am I telling the story? What is it that I have to bring to this particular story? Um so whether I'm doing Turn Me Loose off Broadway literally mm-hmm. well just to answer your question yeah. literally um I was doing Turn Me Loose off Broadway at the West Side Theater and then on every kind of alternate weekend I was flying to England to shoot um uh, uh, Batman versus Superman or Justice League one of the other. Yeah. So I was little lit- I think it was, was Justice League actually because I remember leaving the set of Turn Me Loose or leaving cuz what I would do is I'd go out and I'd talk to the audience afterwards yes. and and Turn Me Loose was a very hard um, deep, very passionate, very emotional drama, and then being flown to England um, the next morning, getting up um, and being... Actually, I think that day, when I got to, got to England that day, being taken directly to the set, put into costume, put a harness around me, and some creature grabs me and flies me over the wall, and I thought I was at some kind of very sophisticated Halloween party.
0: You're like, what is happening?
1: But it was an interesting kind of thing to go through, to go through something very serious, and then something not quite as serious, but serious still.
0: But by the way, first of all, not for nothing, I've done plays at the West Side Theater. That's such an intimate theater. Oh, it's lovely. You're literally, it's almost like doing it in your beautiful living room, right? Like you're so engaged and close up yes. with your audience. Um, and then to go to a master monster set like that is crazy. But also, let's just point out that that franchise loves you so much that they're working around your little play schedule. Yes. So that says a lot about when I said earlier that people love you. Um, Not everyone does that. Not everyone has mountains moved for them so that they can do their passion, beautiful project uh, and a huge Justice League. It's also
1: it's also Zack Snyder. Zack Snyder is a really interesting man. I mean, he here is this enormous set with all these incredible high paid actors involved, as well as this all of these extras. Yeah. And he is the most affable easygoing. Um, you would not know that there was pressure on him in terms of the amounts of money that are being spent. Um, what it, keeps
0: people like that so calm?
1: I think because he loves what he's doing and mm-hmm. he knows it very well. He knows the genre really well. Right. And so he talks the genre. So they come in and you swoop down and bang. And, and he loves it. And he loves it.
0: Yeah. And he's earned his stripes, yeah. right? Like he you do it enough yeah. and you do it as well and you so it make was, everyone more money than yeah. God. So it's yeah. very
1: comfortable. It's just very comfortable. So
0: when you now because you get to do all of these huge movies, I mean you must get you must be able to tell right away what someone is recognizing you from.
1: Not necessarily. Really?
0: No. Are the Justice League fans the same as the Scandal fans the same like do you feel like it's not no, kind I of think, divided in that way?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean I think um
0: I mean, obviously, if you're a comic con, it's different than being, a, right. you know,
1: but I mean, I think. Paleo- media. I think they're um, mostly women and mostly black women recognize me from Scandal. Uh huh. Um, it's usually Terminator 2. Now, see, Terminator 2 and Justice League are two different generations, right? Right. So it's right. an older generation that re- remembers me from Terminator 2 and or right. Brother from Another Planet. It's the younger generation that has seen me in uh, Godzilla or Batman vs Superman or 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 Justice League.
0: My 13 year old son, I didn't even. And tell him that this was happening today because he needs to go to school. Right. And I wasn't going to take him out of school, although maybe I should have because this would have been a great education for him about integrity and uh, how to live a good life. Well, so, you'll,
1: you'll hear the podcast. I hope Hopefully. so.
0: Willie, Willie Joe, Willie I'm, did, I'm, That's completely <laughs> Willie up to you. I <laughs> to listen. Um, so now, uh, I, I know a lot of people who have been on scandal. I have uh, spent time on vacation with people who have been on scandal. That is a show that fans cannot help but interrupt your dinner, your time at the beach, whatever you're doing, because they feel such ownership mm. and love for these characters and invested in it like it's um like it's a soap opera yeah, in some ways. Much, yeah. Um and you played a very complicated character. Someone who loved his child more than life itself, but would also do very immoral things. Well, because he Uh, loved
1: two things more than he loved himself. He loved his daughter and he loved his country. Yeah. So the country was his job. The daughter was his love. Yeah. So when those things, even when those things were in conflict, he had to manage to figure out a way to how to sort of balance all that out.
0: Have you had? Do you have children of Three. your own? Yes. Are they? How old are your kids?
1: Uh, I don't tell my oldest daughter's age. Okay. Anymore. Okay. Uh, my son turns thirty in September. At, uh, wow in like six days. Okay. um, Four days, actually. Um, And my youngest uh, is 20, just turning 27.
0: And are they involved in the arts as well?
1: Uh, My youngest uh, studied dance Uh uh, all during school. She works for an organization, I hope I get this right, where I think the organization helps dance companies find choreographers. Mm -hmm. And they put special events together to make all that happen.
0: Okay. So... They have grown up with a parent who has been um, in the public eye for Mm. a long time. You've done really, really popular projects. Yes. Um, How have you met? And you had to travel all over the place. And in some ways, you know, you traveled a lot as a kid. I did, yeah. uh, For different reasons. Um, Did you bring your family with you when you would go to work?
1: Well, not always. I Mm -hmm. mean... um, uh, with my oldest daughter, uh, her mother and I separated when she was very, very young. So she and I actually traveled a lot. She would come to theaters when I was working in theaters. She would sometimes come on locations if I was on a location mm-hmm. doing a film. Um, but there's a point at which that has to stop. Um, because
0: their lives take that's right. precedence in right. their schedules. Um, yeah.
1: So then when I remarried, uh, and uh, Nora and I had two children, so now we've got three. Yeah. Um, there was a point at which – and Nora was in the business. She was the production designer for Brother from Another Planet. Oh,
0: and that's how you met?
1: That's how we met. Sweet. Um, so, again, there was a point at which where we could travel. Um, and then – but once school starts and all of that, she had already made it – she, Nora, had already made the decision that maybe she was going to stop being a production. She was also a sculptor. Okay. Um, so that's what she decided to do. Then she could stay home with the kids and then I could travel.
0: And did you raise them on the East Coast or the West Coast?
1: On the East Coast. Okay. I mean, they came – Uh, When my son was uh, born, he spent a little time uh, before he turned one. I think he had his first birthday in L.A. We Mm -hmm. lived in Santa Monica at the time. Uh, Or we were staying in Santa Monica. We never stayed there all year. When I'd I'd come back to the East Coast at the the end of every season. Just because? Uh, Because I don't like living in California. Okay. Um, uh, I think for me at any rate, living in L.A. was kind of like never leaving the office. Mm -hmm. So that, you know... Most people, you go to work, you, when you go to work, at yeah. the end of the day, you close the door and yeah. you go home. Yeah. So in L.A., that doesn't quite work that way because the person behind the counter has a script that they want you to read, mm-hmm. or you run into this person who says, oh, you know, you get into that conversation, so what are you doing? Which really means, what are you working on? I right. mean So you never leave the office. So it was nice at the end of a season to come, we lived in Brooklyn at the time, to come back to Brooklyn and just be kind of just a family.
0: Yeah. Did your kids, I, I'm raising my kids in Brooklyn. Did your kids go to school in Brooklyn?
1: Uh... No, by the time they were school age, well, my my oldest daughter was going to school in New York. She, okay, she I guess was one of the privileged ones, so she went to private school in New York City, yeah. and then she went to uh, uh, Sarah Lawrence f- for college. Nice. Uh, my youngest, uh, we bought a house in Montclair. Okay. Uh, because we'd heard that the, the Broadway school, of New Jersey. Exactly, but it's also that they're <laughs> known for their, for their schools. Yes, their elementary schools are, are terrific. Um, so th- that's why we moved there. So
0: when you do a play in New York, do you, like, thank everyone for coming and try to make the last train? Or do you drive back and forth so you don't have to have that pressure? Um,
1: sometimes uh, I would drive back and forth. Sometimes I would take the bus. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think – when we lived in Montclair, I don't think I ever took the train. Right. Uh, the bus, actually, because the bus – that there were two buses that landed closer to the house than the train ever could. So,
0: so now um, you're on God Friended Me. Yes. Which is such – like, I do not pitch television shows, nor am I an executive at CBS which would receive pitches. But what a show that you could hear – I can imagine the pitch in one line, right? Like, it's a perfect concept for now, this idea of social media and spirituality. Right. And where those two places join, and can they be joined together. Right. Um, and, I, and I think it's just such a clever, beautiful idea, Um. And it reminds me, um, you know, there was a show, Touched by an Angel. You know, there have just been different shows that have somehow managed to bring spirituality and religion into the mainstream in a way that but, but works. But
1: what's, what's interesting about this one, this is not yes. Touched by an Angel. So there's no lighting effects. There's no angels. There's right. no There's no direct connection to God. Um, so we're not selling um, a point of view. Right. Except that we are selling – that people are all connected. Mm-hmm. That no matter where you're from, what you're doing, there's a connectivity that is human, that is natural, that is part of the, the that should be part of the experience. And part of that means helping one another. Um, so that, that's what Brandon, who plays my son, or who is my son in the show, um, uh, that's what he's tasked to do on yes. a weekly basis. And what's interesting is the guys who wrote it used to do uh, procedurals. For those of you who don't know what a procedural is, like a law show, like Law & Order. Law & Order, yeah. So... But instead of having a criminal or a crime of the week, they have a friend suggestion Mm -hmm. of the week. And that week's um, episode is about how to help that particular friend.
0: Yeah. And it's a very comforting structure. Uh, But you guys are all so wonderful on the show. And I wonder, so when you are pitched or offered this role, I can't imagine you're auditioning for TV shows anymore. Um, or do you still have to audition?
1: Uh, when I when Scandal was first over, I did audition for a couple of shows. Mm-hmm. It was terrifying. I hadn't auditioned right. in years. Um, but then this came along, um, and it was an offer. And I was, at that time, looking for something diametrically opposed to Papa Pope. Uh-huh. And this sort of yes. was perfect.
0: Yes, a real feelings-based human. Right. Um, when you say it was terrifying... I think people would be surprised to hear that someone is seasoned and successful and a master of his craft would get nervous at the idea of auditioning, or I don't want to use the word nervous, you said terrifying. Tell me what happens to you or your body when you have to go into a room as an auditioner.
1: Well. Before doing Scandal, it was kind of a normal way of life. You yes. would prepare the audition, you would go in, and you would start to work. Uh, my advice always to actors is that you're there to start a conversation with the director, not there to please that director right. or not please that director. It's because you're trying to find out what they want, what they're looking for, what you have to offer. Um, and maybe those two things don't jive, and maybe it's not a show you want to do, ultimately. Mm. Um but ha- not having done that for a while, yeah. suddenly I was going in, and I what came in, I was prepared, I knew the words, I knew kind of what I wanted to do, and then have people say, well, no, no, do it this way, without explanation, or or do this, that, and the other thing. I then thought, well, wait, because uh, I was used to making choices. Right, and, and having, having a conversation. And having a conversation. So so having to go back to that kind of thing again was, was sort of interesting. Um, but, you know, uh, it didn't last very long, and I was on to the next thing, so...
0: I always thought if I wrote a one-woman show, it would be called Back to One. (laughs) Because I feel like that idea of you're always going back to one, whether it's physically the idea of back to one, is what it means in movie speak when you go back to the beginning of the scene. But I do feel like as far as we get, there's always another place we want to reach. And uh, sometimes we have to go back to auditioning to show people things we haven't done before. Um, And I think that's a really interesting concept, this idea of starting a conversation, because we understand that intellectually, but it's hard when you go into a room and it is set up that we are not colleagues, that one person's on one side of the room and the other, you know.
1: There was a story I was once told. um, uh, An English actor was auditioning for something at the public theater Mm -hmm. in New York, and uh, the director, after they they had an interview, there was a conversation, and the director said, well, so maybe the next time you come in, you'll read for me. And the actor said, well... We'll see. I don't really know you that well. Yes. Yes. And I thought, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yes.
0: And whether we literally say that or not, to have that kind of, I don't know, sense of self and clarity of your equality in the process. Um, You (laughs) have many things that you are expected to go to today. Uh, I'm not your only interview. Um, I'm going to the Downton Abbey premiere, Uh which which is thrilling because I. Love that show. But I can't not ask you if there's maybe a little known fact about you that you could share with my listeners.
1: Maybe most people don't know that I direct. So I directed on Eureka when I was on Eureka. I directed on Scandal the last season when I was on Scandal, and I'm directing on God Friended Me.
0: Wow. And is that something that you, when you were on Eureka, that was the first show you started directing on? No,
1: I I directed on Tribeca when I did Tribeca years before that. I, and I was telling somebody today, I said, that's that was so long ago, we were still shooting film.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Wow. But that has just given you a whole new way of, like, you'll always have work.
1: Uh, that's part of the idea. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, again, what I, what I've done, for instance, in Eureka. Yeah. Um, Eureka was kind of a middle ground kind of show. We did really well on sci-fi. We were number one on sci-fi for a little while. Um, but I wanted to make, I wanted to make more of it. I wanted to find out what more. So I directed on the show.
0: So uh, you asked them, you're like, can I, was that in your contract or did you at I some, was some in point? The con- just, no, yeah. it was in the contract. It yeah. was in the
1: contract. Uh, cause I had directed previous to Eureka. Yeah. Um, but the other thing I did is um, there was a – I don't know if you remember the show, but there is – Colin Ferguson's house in the show it was called The Smart House. And inside that smart house, there was art up on the walls. But a lot of that art was mine. Uh, I was into um, uh, uh, um, photography, uh, and I would take pictures of things, and uh, I'd make them abstract, and we'd put them up on the wall, and then they paid me to every time you, they amazing. showed. That's So I did that, and then um, – there was a character that came on the show uh, played by a lovely Asian actress. Um, she, she dies on the show and then comes back later on. I think even another season, but as a robot uh, of sorts. Um, and I came up with this idea of writing a song about being in love with someone, but, but never having said goodbye to them. And now it was time to say goodbye. So I wrote the song uh, we recorded it and it played on the show. So. So there are those kinds of things that I enjoy doing. Right.
0: Um, and open up new parts of your brain. Yeah. And, and so quickly before you go, as someone who has been on both sides of the audition room table, as it were, what what is something that you can share now? I, I imagine... People send tapes in now, and, and the casting director has you look through right. her, her picks. But are you ever in an audition room anymore where the actors come I in? Haven't,
1: I haven't been, um, no. So um, for
0: looking at tapes, because you have to look at 8 million tapes and make a choice off of tape, anything that you've noticed that works or doesn't work for people when they put themselves on tape?
1: I suppose, I mean, it sounds a little strange, but I suppose the the, the, the best tapes are those folks who can just be completely relaxed and more or less be themselves. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, You can feel that, and it comes through.
1: Yeah, because when people are, first of all, doing self-tapes, I think, is horrible. I
0: know, but that's what we're asked to do Uh, all the time now. I
1: know, It doesn't, it doesn't, what it eliminates is the possibility of being in a room with someone, and so maybe that person is nervous, so you give them a couple of shots at it. Sure. And then they relax, and suddenly you begin to see what they're capable of doing. And there is a human interaction. With a tape, it's take it or leave it. And that seems to me to be too corporate, mm-hmm. that it should be, that that's not an art. Because right. if I'm an actor, I may not be a very good photographer. Right. Um, uh, or I may a lighting not, designer. Or a lighting designer. Yeah. I may not have a spot in my house that makes any sense for what it is I'm auditioning for. Somebody sure. today said they had to do a self-tape of, uh, uh, of being in an explosion. And I said, really? They sent you that? I said, I'm surprised. He said, yeah, yeah. I said, so what did you do? He said, I just fell on the floor. And I thought, well, all right, see, there you go. <laughs> no, that doesn't exactly. work.
0: Exactly. Um,
1: so it's, it's – um, I, I think it's a shame that people are not in the room anymore.
0: Right. Well, I'm really glad that I got to be in the room with you today. Thank you. This is not a self-tape. This is absolutely real. And congrats on everything. And I hope you'll come back another time because we just scratched the surface of your beautiful career. Well, thank you. And uh, until
1: next time. Yeah, until next time. All
0: right. Clouds can make the wind blow. So if you love the show, please donate. Little Known Facts is edited by Nicholas Klar and recorded in New York City.